0: Hello, and welcome to Guiding Assets, the flagship investment podcast for CFA Institute. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and on the show today, we are fortunate to have one of Australia's most highly respected leaders in the financial services space talk to us about leadership. I'm joined today by Richard Brandbeiner, CEO of Pendle Group, which is in the midst right now of merging its nearly $100 billion asset management business with Perpetual. Richard has a history in leading both asset managers and asset owners in addition to 10 years at the helm of CFA Society Sydney. We look to draw out some of the key learnings from his career today, and also get a view on some of the findings from CFA Institute's Future of Work Study. Welcome Richard. Thanks, Mike. Nice to be here. Now, Richard, I'd like to start out with your unique career path, and I have a couple of questions to get us going. So I'd like us to chat about what key skills and insights that helped build your career, and were there skills that stand out as being important at various stages of your career? I I should say off the top that the driver of this question is the persistence of the theme of T-shaped skills, which came up in CFA Institute's Feature of Work series, as well as in a recent episode with Ian Robertson and Samir Samal. So I'm curious about your thoughts about the relative importance of technical, soft leadership and T-shaped skills at at various points in your career. Thanks, Mike.
1: Yeah, it's, um, look, firstly, I've had a a wonderful career. Um, I've been very fortunate. I think what has, stood out in my career was that I've had the opportunity to work in almost every aspect of investment management, um, of the investment management industry. So I've worked in distribution, I've worked in product, I've managed money, I've worked obviously in management, I've worked across all asset classes as well, both private and public markets, and I've worked on both the funds management side and also the asset owner side. And I think, so purely the breadth of exposure that I've had has been incredibly valuable as it's allowed me to distill a number of ideas, I think, as I've got older and, you know, taken different types of responsibilities. One of the challenges one faces when you are building a career is that you don't know what you don't know. And it can be quite unsettling to sort of, you know, be comfortable not knowing something because you feel like perhaps you, you should know and you, you, you won't be as highly regarded. I think the, the the first key thing is is being okay with not knowing the answers to questions. And at different stages of your careers, you can do that in different types of ways. I think early on, you have a luxury of being able to say, I don't know. I, you know I've never done that before. I don't know what that means. And... As long as you don't do it too often, I think it's a wonderful way to obviously grow and learn, but more importantly, demonstrate authenticity and build trust and build relationships. One of the interesting things is people like helping other people as a general rule. There's an old trick in sales that you get greater engagement with someone that you're trying to sell to if you ask them to do you a favour, which is an interesting thing. But it, it it it's true. So so I think when you're when you're growing in your career, you know, being comfortable actually not knowing things and then sort of leveraging others to to grow, I think actually helps win authenticity, trust, and obviously you'll learn more. As you get older, of course, it's it's amazing how much people respect it when you accept the fact that you don't know and you're honest about the fact that you don't know. And you're honest about the fact that Actually, it's all of us coming together that help generate the best answers and that you don't need to have all the answers all the time. And I think that one of the advantages I've had is by doing so many different aspects of the industry and across all different asset classes, there's been heaps I haven't known all the time. And that's engendered an element of humility, I think, authenticity and the need to build relationships and ultimately it leads to technical expertise ultimately but the journey in many respects has been more important because that's what's led to i wouldn't say i've got t-shaped skills but let's say more more t-shaped than than i-shape so but you know at different stages they required different elements of that but ultimately i don't think there's any question relationships authenticity and then one last thing i want to add which I think I've learned and has been critical for my growth is the idea of service. And what I mean by that is the people that I've seen who have had exceptional careers have built those through serving others. And of course, when you get into leadership roles, that's the key to you
0: know great leadership. Right. And then as I mentioned off the top there, you A big avenue for that for you in your career was oh ten 10 years with cfa society sydney and 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 leading that
1: yeah look this is obviously a a podcast for charter holders i think getting the cfa charter and becoming part of the community was one of the best things i ever did i think I, i often say to people masters are great any learnings great but what the cfa gives you is the community at the end of the designation and You know, it's a fantastic community. It's taken me all around the world. It's given me some fantastic friends and, you know, those relationships, I've seen so many people build careers around those relationships and expertise in many
0: different ways as well. So for the benefit of our listeners, between a dozen years spent at Perpetual and your, your last nearly five at Pendle, you were chief investment officer for four years of what's now called Aware Super. And Aware Super is the third largest super fund in Australia, which for our listeners outside of Oz, so that's the equivalent in that country to say the New York state common retirement among U.S. state plans, OMERS in Canada and PGGM in Europe. So I'm curious to hear about your experience specifically on the client side of the table. So after spending that time as an asset owner, how did that change your views when you arrived back in asset management at Pendle? What, what can you learn from that and what can managers do better? Yeah, it was a very fortunate experience to go through
1: that and then come back into asset management. I think that the key takeout was that we all try when we look after clients to put ourselves in the client's shoes and to understand the world from their perspective because we know that that's how we're going to, you know, better serve them and ultimately build a better business. And it was extraordinary when I was on the asset owner side how rare it was for the asset management community to be able to do that effectively. It really surprised me because everyone was trying to do it. Everyone was trying to see the world through the lens of the client. But when you're actually in that seat, uh, you realize just how far away the industry is from being able to do that effectively. And I think, look, it's a function of the fact that we're all very busy, we're running businesses, we're running money, you know, naturally we all think we're the most important people in the room but you know i i remember having lots of conversations with with fund managers when i was on the asset owner side where they would they would be trying to talk solutions not trying to pitch products you know i think we're beyond that now but you know still not really appreciating the unique challenges that i faced many of which weren't investment related even though i was the cio you know many of which were people related or or had to do with with regulatory challenges or, or all sorts of things, and even those that were investment related, you've got to remember, these, particularly pension funds, these are huge, diversified portfolios. You know I mean, we would have had I don't know, six thousand individual or sixty thousand individual lines of securities. you know, it was one manager plays such a small role in all of that. And what really matters is how they fit with other things and, 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 you know, in many cases, the expertise that they can bring to the broader challenges that, that an asset owner has. So certainly when I came back into that world, firstly, I did it with great nervousness because, you know, when you're on the asset owner side, you realize how competitive the market is. You know, like we'd get approached by, you know, thousands of managers every, every month and, and some of them, well, most of them were exceptional. And so it's an incredibly difficult game. But when I came back to become an asset manager, you know, I tried to make sure that my teams really did go that extra mile, really did try and understand the whole landscape that their clients, whether they were institutional or, or wholesale or retail faced. And we're still trying because it's not an easy thing to do. But to those of you who are in asset management, who are dealing with pension funds or financial advisors or whatever it is, every step you can take to actually see the world through their lens in a real way will make a huge difference to
0: your engagement with them and your ability to serve those clients much better. Thanks for that. Something that emerged as a theme in this future of work study that I referenced earlier was a rise in interest in purpose-driven leadership. Can you tell me, Richard, what is purpose-driven leadership and, and how can you build the skills necessary for this? I think purpose-driven leadership probably means different things to
1: different people. I think it's still a space that is probably evolving. In my mind, I, I'm thinking about two things. One is, you know, having a clear perspective on the purpose of the organization and that purpose not necessarily just being about growth for growth's sake, but actually what role that organization plays in the community and in the system and we're we're incredibly fortunate to work in this industry because investment management financial markets exist for a reason and that reason is ultimately about improving well-being it's the way we do it and what we do actually matters and it makes it and it's not just in growing, wealth for clients and therefore improving their well being through their life, it's also in the way we deploy capital. You know, the volume of, of capital in our industry is is overwhelming. I think the last number that I saw is something in the order of 150, 160 trillion dollars compared to a, you know, a global GDP that's probably something in the order of eighty trillion. So, you know, it dwarfs the global GDP and the way that capital gets deployed will shape the world that we all ultimately retire into. So I think, and, and there's lots of aspects to that. Firstly, obviously it's, you know, investment in, in real assets, but it's also in shaping the the cost of capital for organisations. It's also in holding management to account on the equity side and increasingly on the debt side. So, you know, there's lots of aspects towards what we do that actually are critical in ultimately shaping well-being. So I think You know, picturing the purpose of the organisation in a way that is genuinely meaningful for people is a big part of this. The other is recognising people's individual purpose and what motivates individuals. And very rarely is that just money. Sometimes it is, of course, but very rarely is it. And I think, you know, leadership that understands, that is mindful of it, and that works to support people in their individual purposes, in the context of the organisation's purpose, feels to me to be, you know, the right way to build and maintain engagement and, and, and get the best out of it. One point I, I would make, which is probably one of the big lessons of my leadership career, is that there have been so many times where I've someone has worked for me who has been not performing to the best of their ability and you know they've been struggling and hasn't been working out and i can't tell you how many times where they were just in the wrong role and you you move them into a different role and all of a sudden everything changes engagement changes commitment changes hard work it's happened too many times for me just to be an accident and uh, you know we say right person right role Absolutely critical, but I think in some respects they moved into a different role. maybe it was more aligned to their skill set, maybe not. I think it was more about their individual purpose and what they were trying to achieve, and when those things align, then you you're,
0: you're going to have a, a great outcome so it sounds sounds to me like it's a flexibility in your from your position in terms of listening to them and trying to find where they might fit best as opposed to a rigid approach that just says, mm, not working, time to go. It's, it's very hard because it's so tempting when someone's not performing
1: to think, you know, time to go. And sometimes that is the right answer, right? Which, by the way, is usually for reasons that are right outside the, the realm of, of your organization and, and your relationship with that person and that person as an individual. However, you know, most people want to do a good job really you know most people trying hard as a general rule they're just I mean the other thing that that one notes or notices is just how easily people misperceive things and how there can be huge gaps in expectations and understanding when you both think you're presented with the same set of facts and situations and probably the other major lesson for me as a leader has been about Never assume that what you know is what someone else knows um, or what you think is what someone else thinks. You know, when, when things become toxic or dysfunctional, there are usually grave misunderstandings or it's the wrong person in the wrong role or it's the wrong time. You know, all these sorts of things are usually the right reasons rather than, you know, this person's just terrible and I'm great, which is usually a bad... I, I promise that's wrong. <laughs> that's one thing I know is wrong.
0: Well, I, I imagine what we're talking about a lot of the time here is cultural fit as well, and I, I, one of that's one of the things I actually wanted to talk about today, the idea of maintaining culture in periods of high change within the organization. Because if I look back, I know Pendle has grown through acquisitions over the years, and we'll get to the big one currently underway in a second year, but I'm interested in how you maintain and continue to build a firm's culture as you grow and incorporate other firms who bring in their own unique cultures. Like, how do you manage that?
1: Well, just a a couple of thoughts, just before I I, I talk about that particular experience, just in terms of, we talk a lot about, you know, bring people in who are aligned with the culture. I think there's a, a trap with that too, right? Around diversity and inclusion. And that is that, you know, if you, if you always just look for our sort of person, I'm not sure that's necessarily the right answer either. I mean, clearly there are certain behaviors and values that are important but you know people can be culturally quite different and actually add immense value as long as those fundamental values and and uh, behaviors are adhered to with respect to our experience it's an interesting one because we haven't tried to combine cultures after a number, well we've done sort of three acquisitions over the past decade very large one in the uk with a group called Jo hambro more recently, just near CFA headquarters, actually, in Richmond, Virginia, TSW, in both instances there. And then we, we made a smaller acquisition in Australia. But uh, in, in, those, in, in both offshore instances, we didn't try and combine cultures. We actually respected the fact that those organizations had very well-defined cultures. But there was a global alignment. You know, we believed in certain things that everyone believed in which was, you know, autonomy, investment, decision-making, you know, we didn't have chief investment officers. We have small teams that, that manage money in line with, you know, their beliefs and their values. And so, you know, there were aspects of the cultures that were aligned, but they're actually quite different cultures and, and we didn't try and, and integrate them because, you know, we felt that that wouldn't add value and that would actually take away from what was making those teams and those organizations successful having said that you know i think what you find over time is little you know if if you if you're gentle about it and you're respectful you find that sometimes the best aspects can get recognized and adopted and infiltrate other sorts of organization uh, other parts of the organization right now we're going through a very significant transaction um uh, you know, a, a major merger, and I think this will be the coming together of of two cultures, and I think that
0: brings other sorts of challenges, but also opportunities. I think. So, what, what's what's first and foremost in your mind now as you navigate this this coming merger? I mean, as as the CEO of Pendle, like, what's what are the priorities for you in terms of managing your own firm through this combination? Well, the absolute
1: top priority is just communication which is self-evident you know we're trying to have lots of meetings trying to talk through all of the issues trying to flesh them out and very often we don't know the answers to questions and so we're saying we don't know the answers to questions and but we're still saying that and we're trying to be visible and present Uh, you know we're having more social functions than we've ever had so i think i think just visibility presence communication is absolutely critical I think the other aspect is being honest, but also excited about what's possible. You know, like, I mean, we we entered into this willingly because we felt that it was actually going to create a better organization with better career prospects and we'll be able to manage money better for our clients and we'll have more stability over the next decade and beyond. And so this is actually about setting ourselves up for the next decade and and, beyond. and so, you know, that's a huge part of the communication and that's what we're taking people on that journey so that they can appreciate that as well. I think we're, you know, we have been reflecting on some of the challenges that we faced as an organization without being too hard on ourselves, but actually. You know, we're, we're, we're taking action if you like, you know, where, where, you know, you, you see a challenge and you respond, you act. And I think that that is an important element of purpose actually and meaning that people can latch on But I don't want to pretend it's all going to be plain sailing, it won't. I think, you know, we're going through a period where there's, actually the analogy I use is a coin. I say to my people, there's, there's two sides to every coin. On one side is anxiety and uncertainty, and on the other
0: side is opportunity. And that's the way we've got to think about it. So Richard, we're down to our last question, and it's a two-parter. What was your first job in the industry? And if you could go back and take yourself for coffee on your first day, what key piece of advice would you offer yourself? So my first job was data entry.
1: I typed in unit prices and uh, fund sizes and asset allocation, part of an industry database, and I can still type numbers with one hand without looking at the keyboard mic, so that's probably talk about T-shaped skills. That's probably the main one. That's
0: a life skill there.
1: That's a life skill. What would I say to myself? I think a couple of things, um, and these did play out for me. But I, I would remind myself of them because they were so important. And that—that that was one was the importance of relationships. Again, self-evident. You know, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, dear listeners. But, but let's just remind ourselves. In, in you know, in my career, I would say every time I I moved roles in an organization, got a promotion in a different part of the business, it was because I had a relationship. With different parts of the business. I'd worked with them, I'd got to know them, and that helped build my personal brand, which then does tails into the second bit, which is about your personal brand. And it's interesting, as you get older and more mature and more experienced, it does become less about your actual technical skills. Obviously, it becomes it's always about leadership skills, but in many respects, you get and keep jobs because of your personal brand that you've earned and that you're maintaining all the time. And, you know, it is just so important how people think of you, what they know of you, how well you're known across your organization and others as well. And again, it, it seems unfair sometimes, but it, it it is still very, very true. And so, you know, I'd encourage everybody to, Get involved in activities that stretch you across the organization if it's right for you. If it's not, find other ways to, you know, to present yourself and, and, and build your brand. And by the way, if your brand is about, you know, being a quiet achiever, that's okay too. Just need to make sure people know that. Um, and that's where, you know, hopefully having a good leader helps as well. But those are the two things I'd remind myself is the importance of relationships importance of your personal brand. And of course, it goes without saying that, you know, that ethics and,
0: and values and behaviors are noticed and never forgotten. I've been speaking today with Pendle Group CEO, Richard Brandweiner. Many thanks for your time today, Richard. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks a lot, Mike. It's great. Thank you. I'm Mike Wahlberg, and this has been Guiding Assets.